Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Meli, and you're listening to Chingonas Only Club. Before we get started, I do want to mention a trigger warning. This episode does contain accounts on domestic violence, sexual abuse, and other sensitive topics that may not be suitable for younger audiences. With that, get ready, get comfortable, and let's dive in. When I arrived in Mexico, I made it all the way back to where it all started, my grandparents' home. The smell of firewood, the stillness of a place where cars are scarce, and the sounds of cows, donkeys, and horses can be heard in the distance. The entire familiarity of it all rushed the horde of feelings that overwhelmed me completely. I cried the first few nights there, silently in a room that my grandma had so kindly prepared for me. There was no television. No phone, no internet, but she made sure I had a space of my own, and it was all that I needed at that time. At night, there was never any city noise like the one I was used to in LA. Nothing except the owls at night and the loud thoughts that plagued my mind. Among it all, I found myself with the strangest feeling. I longed for my mother. I played every single interaction over and over in my head. I listened to myself talk to her. I recalled how I looked at her with such disgust at how she allowed herself to be treated so poorly. I remember how harsh my words were when I spoke to her. How I could see her eyes give way to the herd when she heard them. The times I could hear her crying into her pillow when she thought we were asleep. It was horrible like a bad movie that played over and over in my head, and I couldn't forgive myself for treating her the way that I did, for victimizing her in the same way my father did, for taking her love for granted. What was worse, I didn't even know if I'd see her again to hug her and tell her I loved her, tell her that I was sorry, and that I would give anything to be near her again. When I was lonely, I craved her presence. I could recall exactly how her hair smelled and the little dimple that formed on her chin when she smiled really hard. I missed her so much. I fell into a deep depression and lost 20 pounds the first year that I was in Mexico. I was no longer able to sleep. My mom and I spoke on the phone frequently when I was able to make my way to the nearest town and wait for her long-distance calls. She was my constant during this time. She would send me money for necessities. She would mail me letters with words of encouragement. And she would ask other family members to check in on me. But it wasn't enough. I was slipping further and further away from hope. And she felt my descent. After almost one and a half years, my mom arranged for me to travel to Tijuana. She knew that the lack of connection with the rest of the world was killing me. And thought that if I went to Tijuana and stayed with acquaintances there that I could get a job, maybe even sign up for school, and my little brother, who was then around 15, could visit me. Since he was a natural-born citizen, he could travel freely into Mexico. My mom was giving me something to look forward to, anything when I had nothing. And so began my eight months in Tijuana, Baja California. TJ felt more like home. I could interact with both English and Spanish speakers, and I felt good when I got to speak English. I missed it. 
It was strange because Spanish was my first language and I never recall having that feeling for it. Most likely because I'd been shamed out of speaking it my entire life for fear of giving myself away. I didn't stay with her acquaintances there. They live so far from town in the desert that I may as well have stayed with my grandparents. I was able to get a job at a little secondhand bookstore across the street from the university. I didn't particularly like the work, but I did enjoy seeing the students every now and then. They were mostly my age and I could imagine and daydream all day of their wonderful lives and how maybe someday I could still have that. This job also paid for my tiny little apartment. One day, a customer came in. He was an employee at a small call center located above the bookstore. He heard me speaking English and told me that my English was very good and that I should consider applying at the call center, that the pay was good and the work was easy with flexible hours. I applied and got hired immediately, working in the grocery store department, calling hundreds of people a day to ask them if they preferred Kroger or Walmart and what type of products did they like. About a month into that job, I met a student from the university who told me she worked for a bigger call center company called Tilvista. I worked there for about five months, made excellent money, and bonused almost every week because I was fast and I was courteous. The customers loved that. In truth, the customers only felt comfortable with me because I didn't have a heavy accent like my other colleagues. I sounded more American. Often, they called and hung up multiple times until they reached an accent that was acceptable to them and gave them confidence to do business with us. The fact that we were an internationally reputable organization owned by then Forbes' richest man in the world, representing Avis, Verizon, and several other corporate giants was irrelevant. They always asked where I was located, and the answer had to be San Diego, California, where the weather was always good because if I had said Mexico, they'd hang up immediately. I should have been enraged by this, honestly, that even then, I had to pretend to be more acceptable. Even to do a job and provide a service that they themselves were seeking out. But I was used to this behavior. This is where I excelled, in conformity and acceptance. Professionally, I rarely interacted with coworkers much. I didn't belong there. When I found myself telling people I wanted to go home, they looked at me like I was stupid. You're Mexican. This is your home and it almost angered them as if I had rejected them personally. One day, my shift supervisor began to call my personal phone outside of working hours. At first, it was weird questions about my time card, then odd questions about my schedule. And then, one day, out of nowhere, he showed up at my house, which I found absolutely terrifying because I had never given the company my actual home address. I gave them my mom's friend's house address. That way, immigration services could always reach me if they needed to. That's where all my official mail went to. He stood outside my house and called me all night, over and over and over again. When he finally left in the early morning, I packed all my belongings in a suitcase, and I left without giving the owner notice. I don't know what his intentions were, or what led him to believe that he could just do that. But I didn't want to find out. And I had experienced enough to know that it couldn't be good. 
That morning, I sat in a coffee shop and found an ad for an apartment above a wood workshop, and I convinced the owner to let me move in the same day. He was very kind and saw I was desperate and scared. I didn't have any furniture, so his wife gave me a mattress they had lying around that belonged to their daughter, who was around my age. She also gave me some used dishes and cookware. I think they felt bad for me. I didn't even get my last paycheck from Telvista because I didn't want to risk seeing this person again. I don't even know his fucking name, but I will never forget him. After that, I didn't work anymore. I was terrified. I survived off my savings and the money my mom sent me. It was enough. The family I rented from did carpentry work, beautiful carpentry work. And every so often, the husband would ask me to cover the front desk or watch his three-year-old daughter. And I did odd jobs cleaning up the shop for him. He would pay me accordingly, and sometimes they would bring me a home-cooked meal from his wife. They never asked me any questions, and yet, they potentially saved my life. Just when I had gotten used to the idea that I would never come home, two years had passed and I turned 21. I celebrated with mac and cheese because I only had one pot and it was the only thing I could afford. I ate the whole box and called it a day. I began to research that night whether I could enter the university with my high school transcripts and realized I had no clue how the Mexican education system worked. It was disheartening, but I was so tired of holding out hope that I would ever come back home. It was breaking my heart day by day, and I sometimes just wanted it all to be over. But as luck would have it, in December of 2007, I received a letter from Immigration Services that I had an interview scheduled on January 30th of 2008 in Ciudad Juarez, which borders the state of Texas, and at that time was considered the female murder capital of the world. No, this is not me being dramatic. This was a real thing. Women were disappearing everywhere and being sold into human trafficking, or their dismembered bodies were being found in the desert. Crimes against women were so prevalent that my mom didn't want me to go. I would be going all by myself, not knowing my way around, and relying on public transportation to get around. It was a huge risk, but I didn't have a choice. I waited so long for this. So, I went. I arrived in Juarez the evening before my interview. My mom paid for my flight there and for my hotel. I was so nervous and scared the entire time. I flagged down a cab and prayed that the driver wouldn't take advantage of me. I had a small suitcase and it was apparent that I was just not from there. In Tijuana, tourists are robbed or extorted for money. So I prayed that this guy was at least one of the good ones. To my joy, he was. We spoke the whole way to the hotel. And when we arrived, he turned around and very seriously said, Mija, llámame mañana y yo te llevo a tu cita. Call me tomorrow morning and I will drive you to your appointment. He had the same fears I had. And he had three daughters at home around my age. He said he couldn't forgive himself if he allowed me to just figure things out on my own. I hesitated at his offer, but I was in no place to turn down a friend. So, we agreed on a pickup time. I didn't sleep all night thinking of what that appointment or interview would be like. I imagined it would be chaotic and that I'd be called into a room of some sort to sit down for an interview 
and they'd ask me questions. I was prepared to answer anything. I rehearsed everything over and over in my head. I practiced on my best professional voice, my tone, and I made sure I remembered to brush my teeth and wear deodorant. The last thing I wanted was to smell at my interview. I needed to make a good impression, and that was all I could think about. Thinking back on it, I laugh about it because it was nothing like that, and I was so stupid. My appointment was at 9 a.m., so I got picked up by my cab driver and arrived at 8. The line for entry was wrapped around the corner, and being that it was January, it was freezing. I figured once the building opened at 8.30, we would all be allowed inside, but I was wrong. The agents guided us all like cattle to another outdoor area where you went in and registered. Then you'd be moved to a secondary area where you waited, again, all outdoors. There was nothing allowed inside. No bags, no food, no drinks. Only the documents required for your appointment were allowed. I waited until 5 p.m. in the cold with no food or water until I was called inside the building. By the time I was called in, I looked exhausted and disheveled. I could barely stand because the cold had stiffened my entire body and caused my back to hurt. I couldn't even feel my hands. I handed her the paper and snatched it out. I was called to a window by my case number where a female agent asked me for my paperwork. I handed her the appointment paper and she snatched it out of my hands, stapled it to a separate document, and told me to go wait again. No further instructions. Just go wait over there as she dismissed me with her hand. I walked over there, not knowing how to feel. And before I could reach the area to where she pointed me to, I heard my case number get called. So I turned around and went to the following window, where the voice was calling my name. A different woman said, Pasaporte, in her American accent, asking for my passport in Spanish, assuming that I, of course, didn't speak English. As I handed it to her, I made it a point to say, here you go, ma'am, in my best American accent that I could manage so she knew she didn't have to struggle and could speak to me in English. But she didn't bat an eye. She didn't care. She didn't even look at me. Not once. Not when she reviewed my file and asked me to verify information. Not when she asked me if I willingly departed or if I was forcibly removed. Not when she asked me how old I was. She never even referred to me by my name. She opened my passport, stamped it, and told me to cross the border that night to annotate a legal entry. I asked her what that meant, and I told her it was so late, close to 9 p.m. by then, and where it was located, and if I could do it another day. Not glancing up, she told me she was not the information desk, and called the next number. I didn't know what to do. I had no clue what had just happened. I wanted to cry. I was cold, hungry, tired, and confused. I called the only number I had, my cab driver. And to my surprise, he answered, even though it was late. He told me to come outside. He was waiting for me. I couldn't believe it. He asked me how it went. And I told him and he said it was good news and that it meant that I was on the right path. 
Then he drove me to the border, showed me where the pedestrian catwalk was, and directed me where to go. He said, when you come back, I will be waiting on the other side. If you don't see me, wait. Don't get into any other cabs because I have to make my way all the way around. So I followed his instructions carefully because I trusted him deeply. Drying my tears, I made my way up the walkway and was questioned by the border patrol agent. I showed him my paperwork and told him what I was trying to do. He walked away with the papers, and then he called me over to a small office located at the center of all the lanes. An elderly man stamped my passport, and he handed it back to me. I asked him what was next, and he said, You're good to go, darling, with his American accent. And I just sobbed then and there. I thanked them both, and I ran to the other side where my trusty cab driver waited. He cried in the car with me, saying he was extremely happy and his daughters would be ecstatic to hear the good news. They were all anxiously waiting to hear back. He drove me back to my hotel and promised that he'd be there in the morning to drive me back to the airport. I believe that this man was placed in my path, as were so many others to help me survive. His name was Jesus. But that's all I know of him. I only wish I could thank him for showing me kindness when I needed it most. When I got back to my hotel room, I collapsed at the door. Partially because my body could not handle anything else. And partially because the emotions completely overwhelmed me. I cried on the floor for a good 20 minutes before I got the strength to finally make my way to my bed and reached for the phone. I carried a prepaid calling card, and though it was very late, almost one in the morning, I knew I had to call my mom. The phone only rang once, and she knew it was me. Mija, she said, and I just started crying all over again at the sound of her voice. In between tears, I told her I was coming home. She cried on the other line, and she told me she had good news as well. My brother's son had just been born moments earlier. He was a four-pound baby, and I was finally an aunt. Every time that kid has a birthday, I remember the night he was born, and it always brings tears to my eyes thinking how happy I was and excited to just meet him for the first time, and how incredibly relieved I was that I wouldn't miss a single day of his life. The next day, I flew back to Tijuana. I packed my things once again left a note in the month's rent for the wonderful family that housed me, and then crossed the border back into California that same day. It took about five hours to get home, and the first person to greet me was my brother. He was not an emotional guy. We had never said I love you to one another, and I don't ever remember hugging or holding him beyond five years old. We were not raised in an emotional or tender home, but that day, he ran to me. He hugged me tighter than he ever had before, and he was crying when he said, don't you ever leave us again. I had missed him so much. My mom came out second, and she was crying before she even came out the door. She hugged me and kissed me all over my face, and then hugged me some more, like if I was a little kid. I just stood there and I let her love me. My little brother was shy. I left home when he was seven, then left the country when he was eight. 
He was now 10, almost 11. He didn't know me. He didn't remember much of me. So he just kind of waved at me awkwardly. And that was it. That was my welcome wagon. The original cast. Friends from high school had stopped caring about my whereabouts almost as soon as I left. There was a few who still wrote me, and those are the ones I still keep in touch with to date. But for the most part, it was just my family. Returning home was really hard. I was home, but it was foreign. Things had changed, and I saw everyone in a different light. My brother had a family now. My little brother was in his own world. My mom looked 10 years older, tired, softer somehow. And I was weighing in at around 115 pounds. I looked tired, confused, and sadder. The overwhelming joy of coming home was washed away quickly. I arrived home on a Saturday, and on that following Monday... I was asleep on the living room floor because there was no room for me in this apartment and I heard my mom getting ready to go to work. I got up to see her off because I always enjoyed watching her get ready and she just quietly told me to have a good day and she kissed my forehead just like when I was little and then she told me she left money on the table for lunch and she rushed off to work as she has since I was a baby. I got up to clear the living room and glanced over at the $10 she left me, and I knew that this was not okay. At that moment, I knew I couldn't continue to do this. My mom had to work an entire hour and a half, potentially, lifting heavy boxes and standing to earn those $10. Now that I was home, she would have another mouth to feed on top of my two brothers, my brother's girlfriend and his newborn baby. This was not okay. I cried. I felt so helpless. My brother woke up shortly after and told me that he was going to school at the local community college. He told me to meet him there around 1, and he took me to the registration office. I felt so out of place at the school. I no longer saw myself in these students and couldn't even picture coming to school every day. I had missed an entire two years of my life, and I couldn't just pick up where I left off because the rest of the world had kept moving when I stood still, and I was not going to be a burden on my mom ever again. But I didn't tell my brother anything. I just let him have his moment. He was so happy thinking I would go back to school. He knew I always loved it and that I was good at it. He had hope that I could just finally make something of myself like I always wanted to. Two weeks later, my social security card and residency card arrived in the mail. I called my then friend to give me a ride downtown. I walked into a Navy recruiting office and I signed a contract on the spot. I never told my family until the evening before I left. My mom was extremely sad. My brother was angry and my little brother was just confused about why I would want to leave when I fought so hard to come home. And I myself didn't really quite know the answer. But I just knew that I couldn't be a burden anymore. Their charity case, even though I knew my mom never saw it that way, I needed to go out and find my own way. I left for boot camp on March 12, 2008. 
only six weeks after arriving home. I never thought about the military before walking into that office. I didn't plan on having a career there. I just needed money to feed and clothe myself and eventually help my siblings and mother. The military also allowed me a fast pathway to citizenship. And because I was no longer with my husband, I needed to ensure that my citizenship was granted. My brother never forgave me, and to this day he thinks I took the easy way out. My mom, well, my mom continues to be my number one supporter. She lifts me up when I need her, and both of us have completely matured into very different people. She still hustles every day, even at 53. She sells quesadillas as a street vendor in L.A., and all three of her kids have graduated college. She has four grandchildren and is the best grandmother to them. Finally, having learned to be affectionate, kind, and patient, it's shocking to see her interact with them sometimes, and it makes me sad I didn't grow up with that woman. But I know she had to be tough as nails, with skin thick like steel to ensure she and her children could survive the cruelties of this world. She is the first chingona, and she made me the good, and the bad. Her essence lives in me. Her hustle fuels my fire and my efforts in everything that I do. She raised me and she loved me the best she could, never truly being loved herself. She taught me how to fight, how to stand up for myself, and in doing so, she found out who she wanted to be. My biggest regret is not loving her better, not loving her enough when she needed me and I will spend the rest of my life making it up to her. Gracias, mami, por luchar por nosotros, aunque luchábamos contra ti. Thank you, mom. I stand here today as a chingona myself, thanks to you. My story isn't over. As a matter of fact, this is just how it started. But that's for a different episode, on a different day. Hey everyone, yay, we made it through our first episode. I hope that you guys enjoyed that and thank you so much for your continued support. I really appreciate it. As always, if you're enjoying the content, don't forget to hit that subscribe and follow button. You can leave a review on whatever podcast platform your choice. With that, thank you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Keep being awesome to one another. And that's it. Adios.